You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about poisoning. Joining me is Dr. Kevin Osterhout, who's an attending physician in the emergency department at CHOP and medical director of the Poison Control Center, also at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Katie. It's great to talk to you today. And listeners may remember this isn't our first podcast. We also talked about lead poisoning in the past, so I hope people will go back and listen to that. But today we're talking about poisonings in general, and poisoning is the number one cause of death due to injury in the United States. So let's start with defining the problem a bit. What is a poison? Katie, that's a great question. And when I talk to people and we try to imagine what a poison is, what I'll often ask them to do is to take an imaginary trip through their home or their house or their grandparents' house or something like that. So for everybody listening, if um, you have a garage at your home, take a little walk through there, look around in your mind and see if you can spot any things that you would consider a poison. Then maybe go into the kitchen, look under the kitchen sink, Go into the bathroom, look under the sink, look over the toilet, maybe up into your bedroom, into the stand next to it. And by now, hopefully, everybody listening will have thought of something that's in their house that they would consider a poison. And what most people come up with is, you know, maybe they have some windshield washer fluid in their garage, maybe they have a little pesticide in there, maybe some drain cleaner. But then I challenge people to say, how many people? thought of water, right? Water, what can that be? But in 2007, a California radio station had a contest, Hold Your Wii for a Wii. And that's when a uh, popular game system was out and they invited contestants to come into the radio station, drink as much water as they could without going to the bathroom and they would win this PlayStation for their children. And this one woman went in, drank a massive amount of water, won the game, and then went home, and tragically she died of water intoxication. And so it does teach us that almost anything can be poisonous if it's used in the wrong way, in the wrong amount, or by the wrong person. And knowing that there are a lot of pediatricians listening to this, you know, they'll be familiar with this idea that even things like oxygen, right, with the premature infant, if we have the oxygen dialed up too high, for the babies who were born prematurely that were taken care of in the intensive care unit. We know that they can develop oxygen toxicity. So as the old Swiss physician Paracelsus, the father of toxicology, would have said, all things are poison and all things are not poison. And the thing that differentiates a poison is the dose. Mm, that's a really great point. So the dose makes the poison. So certainly there are things that we know of that are known poisons, but we should keep out an eye out for those other things that when used inappropriately can have a poisonous effect. Absolutely. I think that's right. 
So, of course, we hear a lot now about the opioid epidemic, and although opioid abuse is more common in adults, we know that kids are exposed to opioids as well, both as unintentional and intentional overdoses. We've been taught to recognize the signs of opioid overdose as CNS depression, respiratory depression, and pinpoint pupils. Our clinics now have naloxone available too. What if we give naloxone, though, and it doesn't work? I think that it's great that your clinics now carry naloxone, and this has become a matter of public health policy, right? In Pennsylvania, in Delaware, you can get naloxone for home use without a prescription. There's a standing prescription available. And so I often say that anyone who loves someone who's struggling with opioid use should carry naloxone. Anybody who lives with someone taking long-term opioid pain medicines should consider carrying naloxone. Anyone who has opioid medicines in a home with curious young children should carry naloxone. And then anyone who works in a public place where drug overdoses may happen. Some of the unusual places are libraries, train stations, and it's great that the pediatric practices are carrying naloxone. And so that's something that we want to use to save a life. There are times when we might use it and it might not work. And so as always, we'll sit back and think, did we give it the right way? Did we do everything right? But it's also an important time to think about toxidromes. And toxidromes are these collections of physical signs and symptoms that we use to identify a poisoning. And, and so we recognize respiratory depression, CNS depression, and pinpoint pupils as being an opioid overdose. But there are other toxidromes that can act that way. And actually, um, the medicine clonidine and even related medicines like guanfacine and some of the eye drop medications can look a lot like opioid overdoses and are being so, used so much now in attention deficit disorder and um, for other indications in the pediatric group that clonidine poisonings are becoming very common reasons to refer to our hospital or even to be admitted to our intensive care unit. So even as we're so focused on our opioid overdoses, it's important for us to keep other poisonings in mind. And, and remember that just good attention to ABC, let's keep that airway open, keep them breathing, keep their circulation, and we'll do wonderful things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point, because like you mentioned, those drugs are being used more in our ADHD population. And we certainly see a lot of kids on clonidine and guanfacine in primary care. So keeping that in mind that it's not always the adult opioids, but also the things that we give to our patients. Yeah, that's absolutely true. CHOP is fortunate in having a poison control center, and it's my understanding that they get more than 60,000 poison exposure calls a year. So what are some of the most common types of exposures for children? Our poison control center is graciously hosted by the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. It serves eastern Pennsylvania, pretty much the whole state on the eastern side of the Susquehanna River and the state of Delaware. And so we do get about 60,000 calls concerning human exposures each year. If you think about who calls us, right, um, a, a large percentage of our calls come from parents or caregivers who get concerned about their children. And boy, children are quick, right? We all uh, learn that. And so when you think about the things kids get into, it's the things that they see, it's the things that they have exposure to, and the things that are in everybody's home. So certainly the top number of calls that we get with children refer to things like cosmetics and personal care products. We get a lot of calls from children regarding cleaning substances. 
And then because everybody has some acetaminophen and some ibuprofen and other pain relievers in their home, we get a lot of calls about those. And then don't forget about foreign bodies and toys. And certainly one of the foreign bodies we're most concerned about is button batteries. And so we get a large number of those calls. Of course, the things that children get into and the things that cause them real harm are a little bit different. And every year it seems that toxic gases are most lethal to children. So things like carbon monoxide, so remembering to tell our families to have working carbon monoxide detectors and smoke detectors in their home is really important. Analgesics, and then you had previously mentioned this opioid epidemic. And um, this opioid epidemic is not just adults. We have children who are getting into heroin supplies, fentanyl, prescribed oxycodone, buprenorphine that's prescribed for opiate use disorder. So all of those things can be very dangerous to young children. And I would say e-cigarettes too, right? We're seeing some accidental nicotine exposures from e-cigarettes. Yeah, absolutely. E-cigarettes are often refillable. They can come with little bottles. You'll see that they'll have cartoon characters on them. They'll be great flavors and scents like watermelon and mango and very attractive to children. And we learned that in poisoning prevention a long time ago, right? We even have a book here at the Poison Center, Medicine is Not Candy. And it just shocks me that we're still selling nicotine liquids like they're candy. As primary care pediatricians, we're always giving anticipatory guidance about safety and childproofing, but I would love to hear how you think we should explain these everyday poisons to parents and how to really counsel them about protecting children from them. Kids act fast and so do poisons. And, you know, as a pediatrician during well child visits, watching children develop was such an awesome thing. And they get to the point where they could reach out with their two fingers and pick up a raisin or some other small object in this thing that we called the pincher grasp. And that was a great moment of celebration and being able to sit on their own and then cruise and then walk. And so it's really that time where children develop mobility. They develop the ability to pick something up with their pincher grasp. And obviously they explore it by putting it in their mouth that I, I often joke like it's that's the worst time for a pediatric toxicologist, right? <laughs> right. So, you know, we earlier in this podcast, we did a little imaginary walk through our homes. And it's important for parents to do that imaginary walk through their home. And if a child was unattended, even for a few minutes, and they walk through the garage, if they got into the cabinet under the kitchen, if they got into the drawer that was next to my nightstand, what types of hazards might they find? And it's not just poisons, right? Mm -hmm. It's things like hot water and stairs and other potential injuries. But it's important for us to think about how active our kids are, how curious they are, making sure that we have these potential injurious substances kept out of reach, out of sight, out of mind of children. Mm -hmm. And it's a never-ending task. And as a parent, I and as a pediatric toxicologist, I wasn't always so successful myself. So I don't judge anybody. We all try the best that we can. Yeah, I think that's a really great point that, like you said, kids are fast and this is something that's developmental. And so the type of childproofing you need changes at different ages, right? There's even childproofing in some sense for teenagers when you think about what harmful things they can get access to in your house. And so it's something that is always a moving target too. And parents are sometimes learning as they go. Yeah, that's absolutely true, Katie. And, you know, I think that's an important point about childproofing for 
adolescence and and even for grandparents, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I think there are things that I learned with my own parents that I needed to do to make sure that they use their medications safely and could keep them straight. And one of the things that's kind of currently driving me a little bit crazy is that a lot of pharmacies will fill a prescription for the first month supply and then the next month supply. And then families might get a letter in the mail saying that in order to continue to get their discount, they need to get three months supply of the medication. Mm -hmm. So think about that for some of the things like antidepressants for teenagers that are struggling with mental health issues. And all of a sudden you're going to put three months supply of one of those medicines in the household and having that available in that way, in that quantity certainly is not necessarily a safe option. And we really need to think about what we need to do to keep everybody in the household safe. Mm -hmm, That's a great point. Well, while we're talking about teenagers, there's always new internet trends for dangerous challenges for teenagers, things like the Tide Pod Challenge, where participants were eating the detergent pods, which listeners should once again know is not safe. But are there any current challenges that you've heard of that we should know about so we can counsel our patients to avoid them? These challenges come out quick and furious, and it's hard to keep up with them all. And it's why um, being cognizant of social media and new trends is so important. I think that the challenge that we've been dealing with most lately is this Benadryl challenge that has been promoted on TikTok. And to their credit, the platform TikTok has now banned the hashtag for Benadryl challenge. But in this Teenagers and preteens were challenging other teenagers to take large amounts of diphenhydramine because it was learned that if you took large amounts of diphenhydramine, it could make you hallucinate. And then maybe even post the videos of you hallucinating from that drug on the internet. And we haven't done very structured research on the topic yet, but it's certainly our anecdotal experience that we're getting a lot more calls to the Poison Control Center from regional hospitals with teenagers hallucinating after large diphenhydramine overdoses. And so we think that we are certainly seeing the power of that social media challenge. And remember that diphenhydramine is uh, anticholinergic, and that's the mad as a hatter. So it certainly can make you hallucinate, Mm -hmm. but it's also a sodium channel blocker. It can give you cardiac dysrhythmias. People can die from cerebral edema. And so it's really a bad idea. So certainly we don't want people doing the Benadryl challenge. Yeah, that's a scary one. I'm going to shift gears a little bit because I love how you always remind me that not all poisons are found inside the household. So I've been doing a lot of hiking during this pandemic, and I'm terrified of all snakes. Can you teach me a little bit about what poisonous snakes I should fear in Pennsylvania and what should people do if they're bitten by a snake? Yeah, we certainly love our snakes. And it's a reminder that, you know, the Poison Control Center isn't just a place to call for young children who get into things in the home, but we also take care of envenomations from things like snakes and spiders and sea creatures. It might be even more interesting in the setting of this current COVID-19 pandemic as people have been trying to physical distance. A lot of people have been doing that by getting out into the countryside and taking hikes and going up mountains and so maybe putting themselves in the environment where our snakes live. So listeners might be surprised to know that snake bite is a huge problem worldwide. The World Health Organization has estimated that more than 400,000 people each year suffer long-lasting disabilities from snake envenomation and that there are more than 100,000 deaths each year from snake envenomation. Fortunately, the United States 
that's not our experience, right? It's very rare for somebody to die from a snake bite, but it can happen. But we do get calls. And there are three venomous snakes that live in Pennsylvania. The one that's closest to the Philadelphia area, and we will get bites occasionally from like the region around Valley Forge Park, and that area is the Copperhead Snake. Up a little bit more to the center of the state in the north central part of the state, especially in the mountainous area, the Poconos, you can encounter some rattlesnakes, in particular the timber rattlesnake. There are also timber rattlesnakes in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey, so we could see those. And then uh, in a very small region up near Erie, Pennsylvania, there's an area with a, a little small pygmy rattlesnake called the Massasauga rattlesnake, and it lives up in that region. And so... What do you do? Well, first off, when you're out hiking and you're out walking around, wear appropriate footwear and be a little bit careful when you're walking over logs or rocks that might have been undisturbed. But the biggest reason that people end up getting bit by snakes is they try to interact with the snakes. And so if you see a snake, don't try to figure out, is it venomous? Is it not venomous? What is it? Just leave it alone and get away from it and that will serve you best. But if you do get bitten, what you want to do is remain calm, make sure that you're away from the snake and in a safe spot, and call 911 and get to a hospital as quickly as you can. And all of our native snakes here in Pennsylvania have an anti-venom that is used and can reverse the effects of the snake, and we ought to be able to take care of you uh, really well. But getting to the hospital is the first step of that. And the person who's bitten by the snake wants to take it as easy as they can and get help with that process. Then the other thing, Katie, is to um, also understand that there are a lot more people in our region who own venomous snakes than you might imagine. And there are people with very unusual venomous snakes like cobras and puff adders and things like that. And again, getting to a hospital and then having that hospital utilize the poison center for our expertise will be really, really important. Thank you so much for all that information about snakes. I hope that I never need to use that. So let's move on. Another unexpected risk during this pandemic has been that we have hand sanitizer everywhere, which is a good thing, but it can be dangerous if ingested. Have you seen this happening in pediatrics? Katie, we talked earlier about how children get into things that are in their home, that they see, that they have exposure to. And so certainly during the pandemic response with hand sanitizer all over the place, we've been getting lots and lots of calls to poison centers about children with exposures to hand sanitizers. About a decade ago, some good friends of mine did a study of hand sanitizer exposures with children. And in their study of 647 cases of children being called to the poison center because of their exposure to hand sanitizers, they didn't really have any that had anything particularly bad happen. And so it's important to remember that hand sanitizers are really safe if they're used with adult supervision. And so that becomes the important part. I think even the CDC would say the preferred way to clean a child's hands would be with soap and water with at least 20 seconds of running water. But if not, hand sanitizer is okay. And you want to look at the labels and, and hopefully it's an ethyl alcohol or ethanol. That's the same kind of alcohol that we drink as its main ingredient, usually over 60% in concentration. So remember, that's more concentration than, of alcohol than there is in like whiskey or tequila. And hopefully it even has a bittering agent in it that will make it kind of taste not so good so children won't want to drink it. But if children have it squirted on their hands 
And even if their hands are a little bit wet with it and they take a couple licks, that should be no problem, right? The concern would be if they actually got their hands on the bottle, maybe got the top off the bottle and were able to drink a few gulps. And so that's why treating it like every other poison in the house, keeping it out of reach, out of sight, out of mind, getting it down, using it with supervision is so important. The places where we've seen people getting sick, right, are, again, these teenager challenges when people start to learn, like, hey, there's more alcohol in my hand sanitizer than in my whiskey. Some people get the idea that maybe it would be a fun thing to drink, and it rarely is and usually makes you sick in uh, so many other ways. And then the other challenge we had is for a while, it was hard to get our hands on hand sanitizer, right? The stores seemed to be out, and so people were either making their own or maybe even some counterfeit or bad imported hand sanitizer was coming into the country. And sometimes that hand sanitizer was contaminated with another alcohol called methyl alcohol or methanol. Mm -hmm. And that's really bad for you. It can cause blindness, can make you really sick, and can even cause death. And so we want to make sure that we get our hand sanitizers from a legitimate company, that we've read the label, that we've stored them properly, and then we can use them safely. But if your child does get into them, we'd love you to give us a call and we'll help you through it. Right. And storing things in their proper container is another lesson that I've learned from you in the past. I know with the homemade hand sanitizers, as you mentioned, sometimes people are putting them in an old beverage container or something else. And I know that sometimes people do this with cleaning supplies too. They make their own mixture. Maybe they put it in an old Gatorade bottle. They leave it sitting around. They know it's a cleaner, but children think that it's the item that should have been in that container and might drink it by accident. So keeping that in mind with your hand sanitizers as well, that it should be in a bottle meant for hand sanitizer or that is clearly labeled so that others know what it is. That's such a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. So I always recommend that my patients post the Poison Control Center phone number prominently in their home and in their cell phones, but sometimes they forget that the Poison Control Center can be a resource to us as pediatricians too when we have a poisoning case. So can you make a plug for the Poison Control Center and what it can do for us? Oh, I'd love to. You know uh, that I'm a a huge fan of the Poison Control Center. So... (laughs) You know, we have several missions. We try to help the public when they think that they've had a poison exposure, have an emergency, and we try to be there to help them get to the right care at the right place at the right time, to provide reassurance, to provide first aid. We try to help healthcare professionals when they're faced with a poisoning issue and to make sure that they have the most up-to-date information. We do epidemic surveillance, and by making your calls to us, we're able to see when there are new product epidemics or new chemicals in our area, and without your calls, our database is incomplete. We do advocacy, and we do use our data to talk to public policy officials to try to shape public policy. We use it to do research. And remember, when you call um, the Poison Control Center that's open 24-7 and always free, The people answering the phones are nurses and pharmacists who have gone on to do specialty certification in poisoning. And so you're getting real healthcare professionals on the line who are there to help you. And they also have the support of people like me, physician toxicologists, who work with them to provide the breast care available. So we would love it if pediatricians, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, family practitioners, and anybody else who's listening to this would call us with every case, even if they don't feel like they need help to get it into the database, to make sure that there's nothing else that we can offer them. And certainly if you need help, we're always here and we're always eager. 
1-800-222-1222, no matter where you are in the country. That's a really good point that it's also about research and collecting data. So remind us the phone number again. Yeah, no matter where you are in the country, all poison centers use the same national number. It's 1-800-222-1222. But yeah, program it right into your cell phone now. Why not? Great. Well, thank you so much for teaching us more about poisoning. You've already taught us about lead. You are a wealth of information, and we are really grateful to you, obviously, also the CHOP Emergency Department and the Poison Control Center. So thank you all so much for the great work that you do for our patients. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Katie. Thanks for um, having some interest, and we look forward to working with you in the future. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.